So what we're going to do now is we're going to take each of these texts um, one by one and try to look at them. And I, I don't want to uh, spend a lot of time on the overall context out of which these texts appear, but I do think it's important for you to know that the Great Commission texts are not simply like sewn on the end like, a, like an appendix. They all come in the context of a lot of things that build up to that. You know, so in Matthew's Gospel, you have a lot of influence on the Gentiles. You know, the, only Matthew has the, the, the wise men coming from the east. The, his flight to Egypt is a wonderful text that we don't have time to discuss. But a lot of things happen in Matthew's Gospel which bring us to the Great Commission. In Matthew's Apocalypse, you know, in uh, Matthew 24, he discussed the end of times in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel, the kingdom, we preach in the whole world as testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So these are really preparatory texts that finally lead us to uh, the Great Commission in Matthew's gospel. So when we get to Matthew, it's really a culminating point in Matthew's gospel and ministry of Jesus. He's now the resurrected Lord. Disciples are before him, and in this passage, he gives us this amazing commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age." Now, what I want us to do is take this apart a little bit and see if we can really grasp what is behind all of this and what is it really saying because we would be mistaken not to realize the church obviously dropped the ball on this text for a long time. So this text can obviously be easily misunderstood. So it's important for us to say, well, what's actually been taught here? What, is it, what, what does this text say? Now, first, you'll notice it begins with this statement about Christ and who Christ is. Now, it's so easy, especially for us, you know, if you're, you're evangelical and you want to, you know, go out and preach the gospel, you know, you're so anxious to get to our part. You know, we need to go and, or whatever. But actually, the Great Commission here is very, very clear about what we're calling the Mishael Day, Mission of God. It begins not with what we do, but who he is. So who he is is the basis for what we're to do. So before we get to what we do, we remember that he says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. So Jesus is um, establishing his authority, um, that all authority belongs to him. And that's really important for us because when we go out today, you know, you have a lot of cultural forces that may say to you, well, no, um, you know, you really, you shouldn't share this gospel. Or this is disruptive. Uh, you know, you, or you have political reasons around the world where you, you know, you can't do this. But don't forget, Jesus says, I have all authority. Jesus has all authority. All in this text, you know what all means here? It means all. <laughs> you know, when we were in India, for example, we, uh, India is an interesting country on these type matters because they have, on the national level, the Constitution of India has an article which uh, declares freedom of religion in India. Okay, so on the constitutional level, there's a freedom of religion in India. It gives a lot of confidence. That's what the country should stand for. Uh, India signed the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which gives you the right to propagate your faith. In fact, it was one of the original signatories of that document. 
But on the reality of India, it's not that way. There are many, many problems, particularly as you get into the state level and particularly in the current government uh, of Narendra Modi, it's extremely challenging. I was just in India recently and had a, we had a whole conference just on persecution in India. But anyway, the, uh, the, the challenge is there are states in India that have laws that prohibit you from being baptized. You cannot baptize someone in that state. And it's actually, I mean, this is not like a minor problem. It's a big problem. If you go out and baptize somebody, then uh, you, can, you can be arrested. You can have all kinds of problems uh, given to you. So there are, but there's only certain states that have that law. It's called anti-conversion laws, and they have various kinds of things that they prohibit you from doing. But we have a lot of vibrant ministry in those states, a lot of great ministry. And I've been, you know, refrained from giving you details of our ministry to protect the brothers and sisters involved. But we, we have a lot of amazing ministry going on in North India. I was just there recently uh, with them. And um, what, you know, what we found is that there's no state in India that, that prohibits baptism. There's not border a state that allows baptism. All right, now that's one great blessing. What that means is we get people, you know, they come to the Lord and they're in the church, they're ready you know, to, to be baptized. So what we do is we have a busing ministry. We bus them across state lines. We baptize them. We bus them back. It's like someone saying, you can't baptize in Florida, but praise God, Georgia's there. <laughs> you know, let's go drive to Georgia and baptize them, bring them back. So they can say, they can say, you know, if their magistrate says to them, were you baptized in this state? No, I was not. Because we won't, we win it, we obey the law. But we have a higher authority. You know, we can't say, oh, no, we're not going to baptize you. I'm sorry, it's against the law. Because Jesus says, go, I'm baptized. So we baptize people. Uh, we have certain states where you, uh, you can only, you can baptize somebody if they come from a Christian background. Like there's certain groups in India that are, are known to have long Christian backgrounds. So they're fine with that. Just nobody with a Hindu background. That's, an, that's a conversion issue. So we were uh, baptizing a group of, um, of Indians from that background recently. And they were uh, you know, all from, a, from a, a group in India. They're called Malayalis. They have a, what's called Martoma background. They're all long Christian tradition back to St. Thomas. So there are no problem baptizing them. So we were going to baptize them in a, in a river publicly you know, in North India, which is a difficult part of India. So about three or four days before... Um, we did it. One of the two of the students came up to me and said, um, you know, we want to be baptized. We hear you're baptizing this Saturday. We want to be baptized. We've never been baptized. Would you baptize us? I was like, because these two were from Hindu background. And to them, I was like, you know, well, you're going to baptize, baptize me. I'm like, yeah, but this is a problem for us. Because I was afraid that we would be, if we were seen baptizing that person, then we could be in trouble. So I finally, but I, then I said, well, you know what? Jesus says all authority. How can I turn these brothers down? So I said, I'll tell you what, we'll baptize you, but we'll do it at the very, very end. So what we did was we baptized the first uh, th three, three or four, I forgot now, three or four of the Malayalis. They were from South India. They were, they were up in North India. They're from the South. They're clearly Christian background. And everybody can see in their faces. They recognize them in India. They know instantly that they're from that tribe and that group. So we baptized them very, very slowly. I mean, we really took our time. We had the liturgy. We had confessions. We, had we baptized them in the Father, the Son. We really took our time. 
And so the Hindus had gathered around to watch it. There was like a little bridge there. They were watching it, you know, and they, oh yeah, those are, those are, uh, those are South Indians, you know, so what, you know. And so it was taking us a long time. We got to the third one, they started d- drifting away. I'm like, slow it down, slow it down. So finally, by the time we got that all done, they were gone. So then we brought the, the Hindu background people out. We're like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> uh, and because we had all authority from Jesus, see? Uh, but you have to be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. But the church has always taken a lot of confidence in this thing. Therefore, and go and do this work. Now, when you look at the, um, this passage, again, if you go to uh, you know, a church and you ask somebody to read this passage, it's okay. There's one imperative form. In other words, imperative is the command verb, right? There's one command verb in this passage. Pick it out. Now, I just encourage you to try this at a church or a Sunday school near you. And what you'll find is uh, almost universally, people will pick out which word? Go. Right, go. Because that seems to me, go, that's, that's the imperative, that's the action word, Right. But see, again, this is where it's really helpful to step back and look at the actual grammar of this passage because, in fact, it is not the word go, which is the, uh, the key passage. Uh, it's here. What you actually find is the only command form in the passage is the word, it's a single word in the Greek, but in English, make disciples. All right, make disciples. That is the central command of Matthew's gospel. The other three words, the three controlling verbs, are what we call participles. That means this is a verb that is being used as an adjective. So it's a descriptive word. So we say, for example, like a word like, um, you know, run is a verb, right? To run is a verb. But if you say running water, you're using the word run as an adjective describing water, running water or rolling ball or whatever. This is that kind of word. It's a word that's used to describe the church's life, what the church is doing. So in the passage, you'll see in the passage here, he has this word go, he has the word baptize, and the word teach. Now in the way it's kind of in English, it comes out as baptizing, teaching, but just says go. It's part of the, kind of the, the way English works. But actually in the Greek, there's no difference between these words in terms of how they're structured in the original language. So it's actually, you know, as you are going, make disciples. As you're baptizing, make disciples. As you are teaching, make disciples. So the, the kind of thrust of the passage is to just, okay, what is the church doing? It's going, it's baptizing, it's teaching. These are all to be used for the purpose of making disciples. So Matthew's gospel is a strong and amazing emphasis on making disciples. If you actually look at the passage uh, more fully, it says make disciples, and the, the focus of it is of all nations. Now this right here is where the church lost its ground on this point. Because what they thought, and this is thought today, fair enough, so it's not a completely foreign problem, it's an ongoing problem, but it was a particular problem in the ancient church, that when it says make of all nations, they thought that meant make disciples, or maybe even less, evangelize some people in every country of the world. This, this word nations is not the word for country. 
that is a very crucial point to kind of absorb. Now, let me, let me explain what that means and why, uh, why we're, we're saying this. Um, if you look at the, the New Testament, and you say, okay, what is the, um, you know, what is the word? The word that's used there is the word, in fact, when you hear the word in Greek, you'll immediately hear an English word, probably, that comes from this word. The word in Greek here is ethne. Ethne sounds like ethnic, right? That's exactly what it is. Ethne. Ethne means people, not places. One of the biggest mistakes we've made is turning this into a place word and a people word. Now, what's so powerfully evident about this, if you actually were to go and ask the question another way, way if Jesus had wanted to say, go and make disciples in every country of the world, what, you know, was there vocabulary available to him? I mean, is this something that he could have said? You know, what, what kind, what's the linguistic kind of possibilities if you're saying this to people in the first century and, and using the Koine Greek? And the answer is, there were tons of words he could have used. He could have used the word agros, which means like field, a place. You go out into preach the gospel in that place. He didn't use that term. You know, uh, that, like when it says in the Bible, like uh, some of Cyrene was passing through his country. It's the word agros. Means field or place, you know, you're the place where you live. Um, feeding 5,000, they were scattered into the countryside. Agros is used there. It's a very popular word. Go out and preach that all through the country. Uh, the word Korah could have been used. This is the word in the Christmas text, you know, they were in that country, uh, shepherds abide by their flocks by night. You know, that's the word uh, Korah. Uh, it means a surrounding area. It's actually used in the um, when you have the, uh, the, the parable of the, uh, you know, the lost sons where he goes off to a faraway country, okay? Korah is used there. He didn't use that. Um, he could have used apodomeo. Apodomeo was meant to be, you know, what we would say today, the, the phrase going abroad, uh, the abroad kind of word, where it's, supposed to, it's used to be not your city, but if you go to somewhere way off, that's apodomeo. That's a place. They could have used basileia. Basileia means kingdom. It means like a political entity. It's like go and you know, preach the gospel in every political country of the world, a political entity. He could have used the word gay, which means soil or land. There's just a, endless words he could have used. So when he actually says, make disciples of all ethne, then this is a carefully chosen word. It had, this has import to it, has meaning to it. It means people group. Now, one of the great things about working in India was that this was a point, you know, I'd made to students over the years, and I finally got to the point where I could open up the Hindi Bible, because we were in North Hindi, a language there is Hindi, and right there in the Hindi Bible, it says, go and make disciples of all jati. Okay, jati is the word that's used there. Jati means people groups, all right? I thought, wow, isn't this great? You know, they don't have to worry about this problem. Because for them, they have a word that actually really captures that. And, and, and by the way, we, I shouldn't say the word uh, nation here is actually in English used properly that way. For example, we talk about the Cherokee nation. Okay, that is actually the right word, use the word nation. It means a people. So the word nation actually does mean people. But the problem is in the popular usage of the word nation, we often identify with a political geographic entity, and that becomes a problem. So this is something that is worth um, noting.